Thank you for listening to this sermon from Renaissance Church located in Montreal, Quebec. For more information about Renaissance Church, please visit our website, renaissancemtl.com. If you would like to know more about how you can partner up to see the gospel advance in Montreal, please send us an email at renaissance.mtl at gmail.com. Sunday at the same hour. How is everyone doing? We're doing good? Yeah, it's hot. Yeah, it is, a, it is beautiful outside, isn't it? I just love summer. And I want to thank you all for joining us today, uh, this morning, to continue our series in the Gospel of Matthew. Um, for all the new guests, for the ones who I haven't met, there is a connect table at the back, as Ram said early on, uh, where you can go and fill up a form and leave us your contact. If you want to get to know us, we would love to get to know you. So just fill up that information and we'll do so. Um, I love eating, so if you do it as well, let's go and grab a bite. Why not? Um, today, as I said earlier, we're going to continue in our series in the Gospel of Matthew. And my desire for all of us is that if you are weary and carry heavy burdens, uh, you will come to Jesus because he will give you rest. He will give you rest to you and your soul. He will teach you because he's gentle and kind and hard. If you have a Bible, uh, I would like you to open it up in Matthew 6. Um, we're going to go from verse 5 to verse 18. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, you remember the connect table that I told you? So in that connect table, we also have Bibles in English and in French. So you can go and grab one for yourself. It is for free. There's no extra charges for it. If you don't want to use the Bible, the physical copy, you can use your phone as well. You're very welcome to do that. We're not opposed. So go and open your, your Bible app. If you don't want to use neither of them, there is going to be, um, well, the projector is going to have all the things that I'm going to say, main points, everything will be up there. So you can follow along. The version that where I'm reading from, it is going to be the NLT Bible. The NLT version from the Bible is the easiest for me. So... Before we dive into it, let me pray for all of us and the service. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for bringing us all together to worship you, to lift the name of Jesus high. Uh, Father, I pray that our hearts will be in the right place today, that you will uh, speak through us and that your words will be like fire and that it will refine us. Uh, Father, I pray that you would uh, bless each person that came, uh, that as they hear your word, they will be changed and transformed. Father, I pray that... Um, as you use me through to speak your word, that I would do it with confidence and I would do it uh, boldly, uh, trusting in you. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, we have been going over one of the most famous sermons that Jesus ever gave. The Sermon on the Mount. This sermon has been a major key for the moral ethics in Christianity. Since it talks about how a follower of Christ have to act or be. In the past few weeks, we saw Jesus call himself the fulfillment of the law of Moses. Uh, but not only that, he went on and covers subjects such as anger, adultery, divorce, vows, revenge, and how to love our enemies. Some of, some of the verses that stood out to me the most uh, this week that will, make us, that will help us to understand better Matthew 6, 5 to 18 are the following ones. So uh, they won't be on the screen, but I'll just read them out loud for all of us. It's Matthew 5, 20. 
It says, but I warn you, unless your righteousness is better than the righteous of the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 5.22 also stood out to me and it says, but I said, if you are even angry with, with someone, you are subject, you're subject to judgment. If you call someone an idiot, you are in danger of being brought before the court. And if you, hurt, you curse someone, you are in danger of the fires of hell. Matthew 5.28 says, but I say, anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Matthew 5.46 and the last one. If you love only those who love you, what reward is there for that? Even corrupt tax collectors do that much. There is a connection between all of these verses. And all of these verses um, are pointing at the posture of our hearts and the, motive, and the motives of it. And today we will also see how this posture, how these motives, the motives of our heart, should be when we pray and when we fast. So Matthew 6, 5 to 18 talks about praying and fasting. Let me, let me read the text for us. Teaching about prayer and fasting. We're starting in verse 5. When you pray, don't be like the hypocrites who love to pray publicly on the street corners and in the synagogues where everyone can see them. I tell you the truth. That is all the reward they will ever get. But when you pray, go away by yourself, shut the door behind you, and pray to your father in private. Then your father, who sees everything, will reward you. When you pray, don't, bumble, don't bubble on and on as the gentle zoo. They think their prayers are answered merely by repeating their words again and again. Don't be like them. For your father knows exactly what you need even before you ask him. Pray like this, our Father in heaven, may your name be kept holy. May your kingdom come soon. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today the food we need and forgive us for our sins as we have forgiven those who sinned against us. And don't let us yield to temptation, but rescue us from the evil one. If you forgive those who sin against you, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you refuse to forgive others, your Father will not forgive your sins. And when you fast, don't make it obvious as the hypocrites do. For they try to look miserable and disheveled, so people will admire them for their fasting. I'll tell you the truth. That is the only reward they will ever get. But when you fast, comb your hair and wash your face. Then no, then no one will notice that you are fasting except your Father, who knows what you do in private. And your Father who sees everything will reward you. So in this part of the Sermon of the Mount, Jesus is focusing in two major spiritual acts. As I said, prayer and fasting. In both the scenarios, he tells us how not to pray and how not to fast, but he also gives us the key of how we should do that. Jesus warns us not to pray like hypocrites. He starts off like with that in verse 5. He says, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites who love to pray publicly on the street corners and in the synagogues where everyone can see them. I tell you the truth, that is, a, that's, that is the, the reward that they will ever get. In Christian life, prayer is a very vital action in our, daily, in our daily life. It is how we communicate with our Father in heaven. And Jesus is assuming that we will, make it, we will make prayer part of our life. We will make it part of our daily task. Uh, when, he says, when he says, when you pray, he's assuming that we will, we will include it there. However, he doesn't want us to be like hypocrites when we communicate with God. 
Now, for, just to begin with, what is a hypocrite? Jesus is, forbidden, Jesus is forbidding us to do it with this posture in our heart. And it's valid to ask ourselves what the meaning of this word is. And I found that this word, uh, probably some of you already know, but I'm just, I just looked it up and it says that hypocrite means to pretend to have a virtues or qualities that he or she does not have, which will contradict the, their way of living. This is the definition that most of us will use to describe what a hypocrite is, and it is a valid one. For instance, we can also go deeper into looking for the meaning of this word in the context of the Bible. Most of us will know, most of us know that the Bible was written first in Hebrew and then well, it was also written in Greek. And hypocrite comes from the Greek word, and I hope I'm pronouncing it well. Um, it says hypocrite, which means an actor or a play actor. But for the Jews, for the Jews and possibly many of us in this room, this word, this word will refer to the act of pretending. Um, these play actors will perform with the goal of being admired by the, by the masses. They live for the excitement of being known everywhere they will go. The motive and posture of their hearts will rest on the solo purpose of gaining the admiration and ovation of others. The definition that we just saw uh, pictures very well what Je who Jesus is referring to when he says, don't pray like hypocrites. He's clearly referring, referring to the Pharisees. These play actors who put up an act and play the role of someone who, who, who they were not just to get the applause from others. These religious play actors would oftentimes be asked as part of their ministry to stand up and pray on the streets corners and, you know, and in the synagogues. In their prayers, they will, they, will, they will all say different kind of things, but their words were void. The words were empty with no purpose, and it only, they only wanted to show how righteous and holy they pretended to be. Now, the Bible, it is not condemning, it's not condemning the place or the position that these religious play actors pray on. Um, in several parts of the Bible, we see how many characters uh, pray standing up, kneeling down with others in the room. Uh, but what the Bible is condemning is the motive and the posture in their hearts when they were doing them. Jesus knew all along the, their true motive and when they were praying. In Matthew, 7, Matthew 15, 7 to 9, Jesus is teaching about inner purity and quoted Isaiah 29, 13 to describe these hypocrites, these religious play actors. He says, these people say they are, my, they are mine, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me and, worship me, and their worship of me is nothing but man-made but man rules learned by rod. These hypocrites played the role of devout men of God, so righteous and blameless, making the crowns believe they were, uh, they believe they're acting. But it was nothing but to show an act, because their hearts were far from, were far from the really from the real purpose of what prayer is, which means a connection, an intimate relationship with the Father. They chose to trade this intimate connection with the Most High with our Father in heaven, for the admiration of people who pleases them. Jesus said that if your motives are like the Pharisees, then your reward is given to you here on earth. Jesus starts verse 7, um, Jesus says at the end of this, this, this part in verse 5, that where ev it's talking about when the 
Pharisees are praying in this synagogue where everyone can, the street corners, everyone can see them. I tell you the truth. That is, the, that is all the reward they will ever get. Now, Jesus starts in verse 7, assuming that we will make prayer as part of our lives again. And then he goes on and warns us not to, to take the posture of a Gentile or a pagan. In verse 7, he says, when you pray, don't babble on and on as the Gentiles do. Now, this is another posture that someone can have when they are praying. So we went from have the posture of a hypocrite, and then now to pray or pray babble on and on and on. Um, he, Jesus says, don't, don't babble. This is a very interesting phrase. I personally didn't know what it meant. But I looked it up, and then it basically Jesus is saying not to talk rapidly and continuously in a foolish and incomprehensible way while praying like a Gentile. Like these Gentiles were doing to their idols, to their idols God who were not even alive or listening to their requests. Gentiles will worship these idols by reciting incantations over, over and over with no special meaning for their lives, but with, but with the purpose of getting what they wanted. They think that God will hear them and grant, their, and, and grant them with their requests because of how much they were saying. Jesus clearly gave us a command in verse 8 uh, against this, this way of praying. He says, don't be like them. Instead, instead, when you pray to believe in God, to our Father in heaven, come with an intentional prayer. A prayer that actually means something to you, that reflects the actual needs of your heart and not avoid repetitive prayer. For your Father, exactly, for your father knows exactly what you need before you even ask him. I'm going to repeat that last part because I think that it has, it's very beautiful. Our Father knows exactly what we need even before we ask Him. As I said, this part is really beautiful. It helps us to understand that God knows our hearts and needs even before we have the chance to think about them. If we pray like Gentiles or pagans, we will see, He would see through those prayers right away. And He will only find out that we are not being honest with Him. We're not being sincere. Church, remember that God rejoices when his children come in confidence and in sincere prayer. He wants to hear from us. He's always listening. In many parts of the Bible, when Jesus prays to God, uh, he does not use memorized prayers, or even less, he repeats his prayers over and over and over with empty words. He, we see that he, his intentional and sincere prayers for the different situations that Jesus found himself in. All of this was possible through the relationship between the Father and the Son. As the relationship between the Father and the Son, as a good father is aware of his son's needs. God is also aware that God is also aware of what we need. And in Isaiah 65, 24, he says it. In Isaiah 64, 24, 65, 24 says, I will answer them before they call to me. While they are still talking about their needs, I will go ahead and answer their prayers. In Jeremiah 29, 12 to 13, God tells us to look for him with a willing and sincere heart because he is listening and he will, he will be there for us. It says, in those days when you pray, I will listen. 
If you look for me wholeheartedly, you will find me. There's another passage in Matthew 7, 9 to 11. It's Matthew 7, 9 to 11 that says, If us, sinful beings, give good gifts to our children, imagine how much more our Father in heaven, who knows us better than anyone or anything in creation, how much more will he, will he give us? How, more, how much more will he hear us? So let us be like a child who comes to his father with his heart open and his request in his hands, knowing that the father will listen because how much he, how much he loves us. Jesus makes, God is there for us. God is ready and God is willing and God is able. We just need to come, with, we just need to, come to him, trusting in him and with a sincere heart. Now, the same thing is said about fasting. Now, we went from praying and not being like hypocrites and not being like Gentiles that do not have the right motives in their hearts and they're just trying to impress and get what they want. And in, for fasting, that's not that different. Jesus makes the same point when he talks about this in verse 16 and verse 17 and 18. We're just going... We're, now we're going to see that we're going to jump to the kind of the very end. So we're going to jump straight to that, uh, to this verse, because prayer and faster are kind of linked together, um, linking to the same root. So we're just going to do that, and then we're going to go back to the middle. Um, so it says that fasting and prayer are linked to the same root. They both need to be done with the sake of glorifying God, not with the sake of, not with the sake of uh, pray, praises from from people. Let's look at our text uh, in verse 16. When, and, when we, and when you fast, don't make it obvious as the hypocrites do. For they try to look miserable and disabled so people will admire them for their fasting. I tell you the truth, that is the only reward they will ever get. Verse 17 says, but when you fast, comb your hair and wash your face, then no one will notice that you are fasting except your father, who knows what you do in private, and your father who sees everything will reward you. Jesus says that when you, when, when you fast, don't make it obvious. He's saying don't make it noticeable that, you, don't make it no, noticeable that you're fasting so that the rest can see it and admire you for your actions. Jesus again expects that his disciples will make the action of fasting part of their lives. But to understand why Jesus says uh, that, we, that when we fast, he does, not, uh, he does not want us to make it noticeable, we need to ask ourselves what fasting is for, it, for, for us. Well, what is the meaning of fasting in the Christian life? Now, a guy that is wiser than me and could have put in better words than me, um, I'm going to quote something that John Piper said. Um, he, he says that to understand the Christian fasting, we... He, he puts it in these words. He says that it will be on the screen. Uh, fasting is the temporary renunciation of something that is in itself good, like food, in order to intensify our expression of need for something greater, namely God and his work in our life. So based on what he said, fasting is the giving up of a blessing temporarily to tell God that he is better and that we want him more than whatever the blessing is. Jesus tells us 
not to do it for the admiration of people, but for the sake of God's, of God's living water in our life. The action of fasting and keeping, keeping, them from, keeping others from knowing and only doing it for God, it is a confirmation of how real our God is for us. Uh, since God is the only person who will know that we are fasting, there is, no, there is nothing that can impress anyone if we don't let them know. But for God, who sees everything, he will, he will see this. To all of this, in verse 17, Jesus tells us to go out of our way as much as possible to make our fasting from being known by others. He says, but, but when you fast, comb your hair and wash your face. In a way, this is like saying, act normal. In the past, in ancient Israel, it was really hot, so they will have to, they will have to wash their face constantly to keep it moisturized and hide, you know, just take care of it. So no one will see the struggles that they're probably going through. So this is Jesus telling them to act normal, to go about their days as usual and only let the Father know what they are doing in private. Now, fasting should be the famish that we have for Christ. We say with our bodies that we want him more than food. We, we want him to be our satisfaction, more than what food could ever be. We long for him more than whatever pleasure this world could ever give. And we do it for him and not for the praise of our, of our discipline when we do this. So we get the image that Jesus is trying to paint here about praying and fasting. He wants us to do it, to do this spiritual act for the Lord alone and not for anyone else. And in a way Jesus, and here Jesus shows us this to pray and fast or give us an example of how to do them. Um, in verse number nine, Jesus gives us a great example of how to pray to our heavenly father looking only to please him. Jesus says, pray like this. Now, to me, that sounds like a direct command. Um, I, I don't know if someone could say otherwise, but if you do, let, uh, let's have a talk. But he says in verse 9 that you, we should pray like this. Now, this is the famous Lord's Prayer. But something interesting about this is that I found out in many commentaries that this prayer was also called the Disciples' Prayer. Um, and it was interesting to know that there were other, there are other wiser people out there that are, that are calling this, uh, this prayer the disciples' prayer. But nevertheless, I would like to read it for all of us. Uh, this one is not in the NLT, transla in the NLT translation. This one is a more uh, known translation. So I'm just going to read it, and you probably know exactly uh, what the words are. It says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us for our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Most of us might have been taught this prayer when you were a kid, as my father taught it to me. It was the first prayer I ever learned and I was very excited when I learned it. And I wanted to pray it every, every night. And I did it with my dad. But sadly, as I, grow, as I grew older, this prayer became so repetitive. And I would, 
prayed almost automatically without even thinking about the meaning of each, uh, each word or verse. Maybe, oh, maybe because of the amount of times that we have prayed this prayer, we have forgotten how much meaning there is in each verse for each of us. Now, my goal here is for all of us to be able to remember the beauty of this prayer like, 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 we, like we were children reading it for the first time. My hope is that after today, we will read it with the same wonder as a child. We will see it with those eyes and we will be excited to pray, to pray it every time. So we're going to start in verse 9 and we're going to break down each, each verse as we go. So I know it's a lot, but just stick with me, please. It's going to take a little bit. So verse 9 starts with, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. This first part of verse 9 it starts by our Father in heaven. This is a reminder of who we are praying to. Even though we are addressing the creator of the universe, the Most High, we start, we start this prayer by calling him our Father. But he's not whoever. He's not whoever Father. He's not our Father in, in earth. It is not, he's not any other Father. He's our Father. It's our Heavenly Father. The kind of Father that we can go to with a pure heart and sincere heart. He's not hiding anything from him the protector, the provider, the caring one. Now, what a privilege is to be able to call him the, to, to be able to call the most high our father. It's just mind-blowing. After father, we're introduced to the words in heaven, our father in heaven, which is the acknowledge uh, that our father isn't, isn't here in earth, but he is in heaven looking above uh, to all of us. Now, from there, it goes to hallowed be your name. Uh, or in like the CSV translation, it says, your name, your name be honored as holy. Now, when we hear the word name, I feel it refers to the one's person character or essence. And in this context, it represents the God's, that God's name is holy. All he stands for is pure, unique, perfection, goodness, righteousness. We say, hallowed be your name to recognize his holiness and treasure his name as unique, as perfection, as holy. Now, again, John Piper, a guy who has more wisdom than me again, he says, in verse nine, he says this about verse 9 and how it connects it with the rest of the prayer. It gives verse 9 a deeper meaning. Now, in John Piper says, um, it should probably be on the screen as well. Um, nothing is more clear than and the unshakable. The, nothing is more clear and unshakable to me that the purpose of the universe is for hallowing the of the hallowing of God's name. His kingdom comes for that. His kingdom will be done for that very purpose. His humans have breath sustained alive for that. Sins are forgiven for that. Temptation is escaped for that. All of this is for the hallowed of the, of the name of Jesus, the name of the Lord. We start this prayer reminding ourselves that we're talking to the creator of the universe and the most high and the king and sovereign, and we call him father as a child who would do. And on the next part, we value his name as holy. Now, we go from there to verse 10, and it says, your kingdom come and your will be done. 
In this verse, we ask God that his kingdom come on earth for all to see. In heaven, the name of God is praised and declared by all as a sovereign king. In heaven, there is no suffering, there is no death, there is no mourning, there is no tears, there is no grief. In heaven, we will dwell in the, in the presence of God. We're asking for all of these things that are in the kingdom of heaven to come to earth. But something really curious, though, is that a part of his kingdom has already come. And I say this because even if there is still mourning and suffering and death in this world, each believer who has accepted Jesus in their heart has a peace of the Holy Spirit, has the Holy Spirit in, in their hearts, living in them. And that's a peace of heaven. Therefore, heaven has come to, to all of us, to the believers, to the ones who have accepted Jesus in their heart. God has given us a taste of what it will be like when we are in heaven. So that, we, so that when we pray, your kingdom come, we have in mind that, that we have experienced the Holy Spirit. And this experience will be intensified when his kingdom comes here to earth. In 2 Corinthians 5, 6 to 9, it says this. So we are always confident, even though we know that as long as we live in these bodies, we are not at home with the Lord. For, he li for we live by believing and not by seeing. Yet, yes, we are fully confident and we would rather be away from these early bodies. For then we will be at home with the Lord. So whether we are here in this body or away from this body, our goal is to please him. This verse talks about the new bodies that God has given us when we receive the Holy Spirit, which is already a part of heaven. We recognize that we are not fully in the kingdom of heaven, so we ask God to bring to this earth his kingdom and overrule the power of evil that is, in this, that is ruling in this earth. We tell him that we long for the day when all the forces of evil and wickedness are banished to the reigns of hell forever and that we, and that we enjoy the blessed and eternal promise in Revelation 21.4. In Revelation 21.4, he says, we, he will wipe away every tree from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more. This part of the prayer also refers to the purpose of, this part also refers, uh, serve the purpose of asking God to help us with the battle that is taking place, um, the battle and good and evil, the good and evil. Now, in this commentary, in Christ-centered exposition, uh, it describes perfectly this idea of being in battle in the world and how we long for his kingdom to come. So I'm going to read it for you. It says, we tell our father, I want your kingdom, I want your kingdom, not mine. I want your name to be honored, not mine. I want every, every, everyone here, everything in my life to be looking like if, like if it was the new creation, like if it was in heaven. In my family, work, education, I want your kingdom to be present. In the battle for the souls of men and women, I ask my father to deploy your troops among the nations. Equip, equip your soldiers with the... With equip the soldiers to wield the sword of the spirit which is the word of God as we advance for your kingdom now this is the prayer for when we say I want your kingdom to come Jesus also said your will be done with this we're asking God that we want his kingdom to come we're also naturally asking that we want his will to be done we want God's will to be to be performed and not ours. 
that our will be done, that his will be done in my life, that his will be done in our work, that his will be done in our family, that his will be done in heaven and in earth as it is in heaven. And we pray this part is basically the declaration of surrendering of our power in our own life and giving it to God's will. In Galatians 2.20, it says, My old self has, died, has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So I live, I live in this early body by trusting the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In this verse, this is declaring that the one's old self will, it is not anymore. But because, because it's death. But now we ask him to bring our desires or our wills to be aligned with his and that his will be done. Now, this could be dangerous as well. And we, most of us we under, will understand we have gone through hardships, we've gone through really difficult times. Some of us might be going through that right now. We know that to do the will of, of God is hard. And if we pray your will be done, we're asking him to take us through the process of sanctification and, or as also some may say, refining. This refining process is full of discomfort and difficulty. For instance, let's look at the great example of how God's will is being asked to be done rather than the others. We see this example in our Lord Jesus when he, pray, when he was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. I forgot how to pronounce that, but before he was arrested. Um, in Matthew 26, 39, 40, 42, and 44, uh, it shows us how, how Jesus asked his father that his will be done over his. In verse 39, in Matthew 26, 39, he says, uh, well, it says, he went, on a little, he went on a little farther and bowed his face to the ground, praying, my father, if if it's possible, let's keep, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me. Yet I want your will to be done and not mine. In verse 42 it says, Then Jesus left them a second time and prayed, My father, if this cup cannot be taken away unless I drink it, your will be done. In verse 44 it says, so, when, so he went to pray a third time, saying the same thing. So we see that Jesus asked several times, that, his will, that the will of God will be done over his. Jesus showed show us that doing God's will isn't always easy. But Paul teaches in Romans 12 too, that by doing God's will, it is always good, it's pleasing, and it's perfect. Now in verse 11 says, give us today our daily bread. When Jesus said, why did Jesus say, give us our daily bread? Why didn't he say, give us, our, give us today a month worth of bread? Or give us today a lifetime portion of bread? I mean, in the Father's will, that's possible. He could give us everything right now and we will be satisfied and we will be just so happy. But Jesus teaches that we ought to ask God to provide for us daily. We do not want to go about our days without asking our Father in heaven to give us what we need for everyday situations. This part of the prayer could be also referring to the time when Israel, when Israel spent 40 years in the wilderness and God provided for them everything they needed. 
like the, like the manna that fell from the sky. When Israel was in need uh, for food, God told Moses that he was going to make manna come from heaven and to provide to his people. He commanded them to only gather the necessary for that day and to not store any more than, was, than, was necess- than what was necessary because he was going to provide the food they needed again for the next day. Now, give us today our daily bread is a shout of humble need for help and provision for everyday situation. It is a sincere prayer to, go, to God to help us to have all what we need to get by the day and trust that he will continue to provide for the days to come. It is basically a shout of, Lord, you must supply what I need to live today or I will die. I'm totally dependent on you and nothing else. This prayer is a reminder to us that our physical needs are depending on what the Father gives us. And he gives us generally to his children. And also, it shows us that he provides for our spiritual needs. He provided Jesus for this. The one who called himself the bread of life in John 6.35. Whoever comes to him will never be hungry again. And whoever believes in him will never be thirsty again. Verse 12 says, and forgive us our debts as we have also forgive our debtors. In the same way we ask, in the same way we ask for our daily bread to be given, we ask God for the forgiveness of our sins. That is what the debts stands for. Debts, that's what debts mean in this part of the prayer. Even though we have been made new, we have been, we have been made a new creation and we're justified by what Christ did on the cross. We were faced with a debt that we could not afford, but God's love and grace was more for us so that his son died and paid for us our transgressions. This daily request for forgiveness comes from the uh, sanctification process we, we as believers go through. As we live our lives following Christ, the light of his life exposes our sins which open our eyes to the truth and prompt us to want to live a Christ-like life. Romans 8.1 says that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ, and that's true. The sacrifice of Jesus was enough to cover, to cover all of our sins, past, present, future. That is, why, that's what, that is why in Hebrew, Jesus is called the perfect sacrifice. But J.I. Parker explains this, uh, says this uh, about this part. He says that saying sorry to God and asking for forgiveness is good. Uh, it should be on the screen as well. I'm going to quote uh, this, uh, what J.I. What Parker said. says, The Lord's Prayer is the family prayer in which God's adopted children address their father, and though their, daily, and, and though their daily failures do not overthrow their justification, things will not be right between them and their father until they have said sorry and ask him to overlook the ways they have let him down. Now, on the second part of this verse, on the second part of verse 12, it says, as we also have forgiven our debtors. The second part is linked with verse 14 and 15. So we are also including it here. And verse 14 and 15, it says, if you forgive those who sin against you, your father, your heavenly father will forgive you. But if you refuse to forgive others, your father will not forgive your sins. 
Jesus makes it clear that we ought to forgive others just like our Father has forgiven us. In Matthew 18, 21, 25, we see the, this, the, the passage um, of this ungrateful servant who did not want to forgive a minor debt to one of his servants. When the king had forgiven him, a, ma a major debt that he could never afford. By all means, Jesus is, saying, is, is not saying that the forgiveness of our sins uh, grants us the, the right to be forgiven. Instead, we are so grateful with God that he was, that he was so merciful and paid for an unpayable debt that we now forgive others in gratitude and honor to, to the one who forgave us for so much more. So then we forgive one another, and it shows the power of the Holy Spirit working through us to forgive us, to forgive, to for, to forgive other sins against us. For each disciple of Jesus, forgiveness must be always be in their heart and on their lips. Now in verse 13 it says, And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. This final part of this prayer is referring to the protection that one will ask against the plans of, of the devil. When we pray and lead us not into temptation, we're not, we're not definitely saying that God tempt us. In James 1.13, we see this. It says, and remember, when you are being tempted, do not say, God is tempting me. God is never tempted to do wrong, and he never tempts anyone else. As believers, we think of God as a shield, which protects us from situations from situations that the devil can use to lead us into sin and death eventually. That is, why, that is why in the second phrase of verse 13, we plead to God to deliver us from him, meaning that on our own, we are not capable of resisting him, and we need, we need of God's deliverance from him. When Jesus was tempted, he, would, he could resist Satan, but it is not possible for us. We need a hero, we need a savior, we need a guider. It is... We, we need someone that will guide us in this minefield that Satan has planned for us. And that's Jesus. And I hope that now that we have gone through, we, we have gone together through each part of the disciples' prayer uh, and seen how much depth there is in each verse, we will ask the Lord Jesus to model our prayers to be like this one. Now, Jesus could do what us couldn't. We do not pray or fast with the right posture or heart sometimes. We do, not, we do it imperfectly, and it is because of the sin present in this world. Sin has corrupted all the good things of God's creation, and that includes us. We like to get the admiration and acceptance of others. We are rebellious in our ways. We need a Savior to save us from this. We need someone to teach us the right way, someone who can be the way, someone who can take us from, from this slavery, from this world to break the change of the self-righteousness and pride that we have. We all need Jesus. We live, he lived a perfect life of prayer. He's, we see in the Bible many times how Jesus will go by himself to pray to God, seeking only the acceptance of his Father and not of men. He, would not, he did not went on and on saying meaningless things, but every single of his prayers was intimately to pray to God. And when he fasted, he did not let anyone know how hard it might have been. But he will keep it between God and him. He alone had the right posture at heart at all times to do it. And for us, and, and 
for us to be able to do it with the right motives at heart, we need him. We need him to teach us how to pray daily. We need him to teach us how to fast for the Father and for, for we need of his, of his teachings to go about our day. Let us, let us close in prayer. Thank you for listening to the sermon from Renaissance Church. If you have any questions about the sermon or would like to know more, please feel free to contact us by email at renaissance.mtl at gmail.com or reach out to us on social media. It's our passion to love Jesus, love each other, and love our world.